Righteousness and Holiness A basic aspect of the image of God in man is righteousness and holiness. St. Paul summoned men to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4.24. In Colossians 3, 9 and 10, it is clear that after God means after the image of God. Lie not one to another, seeing ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created him. Righteousness, according to Hodge, when it stands alone, often includes all the forms of moral excellence. When associated with holiness, the one means rectitude, the being or doing right, and the other holiness. The one renders us just to our neighbors, the other pious towards God. Ephesians 4.24 can be read as in true righteousness and holiness, true qualifying both nouns or as righteousness and holiness of the truth, which would then mean that righteousness and holiness which the truth has or which the truth produces. Christ is the truth, John 1.17 and 14.6, and righteousness and holiness, morality and religion, are the products of the truth without which they cannot exist. Lenski renders it as the truth's righteousness and holiness. Man's calling is to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Luke 1, 74-75 According to Lenski, righteousness is God's unchanging love of right and holiness his unchanging aversion to sin. Both attributes are ever active and never quiescent. Hodge thus defined righteousness and holiness in man, Lenski in God. Lenski held that both attributes refer to God and only thus to men. Both refer to heart and conduct. Righteousness and holiness are inseparable from one another and from truth, knowledge, and dominion. Righteousness is obedience to God's law and calling with all our heart, mind, and being. And holiness is our separation and dedication to the Lord in all righteousness and truth. Man's righteousness and holiness are in and through Christ. According to Skinner, righteousness in the Old Testament is strictly a personal attribute. Non-personal uses of the word are undoubtedly secondary. The personal relations indicated by the term are of three kinds, forensic, ethical, and religious. Righteousness, e.g., may denote a. a forensic right, as when Judah says of Tamar, she has been in the right against me, Genesis 38.26, or b. A moral state, as Genesis 6-9, Noah was a righteous, blameless man in his generation. Or C, a direct relationship between man and God, as in Genesis 15-6, Abraham believed and he counted it to him for righteousness. The Bible does not recognize righteousness in any other God than the Lord. He alone is righteous. According to Stevens, for the Greeks, righteousness was mainly a social virtue. For the New Testament, it is essentially a religious virtue. It is righteousness according to the divine standard. It is conformity to the will and nature of God himself. This contrast is important. Humanism wants to define righteousness in terms of man and as a social virtue, whereas Christianity makes it inescapably a theocentric virtue. Other men are involved in our righteousness only by means of God's law. Only as we obey God's law with reference to all things, including other men, are we righteous. Our relationship to all men and to ourselves, must be mediated by God's law. To attempt a purely social relationship with other men, entirely abstracted from God's law, is sin. It is unrighteousness. To attempt a purely personal and autonomous appraisal of ourselves is again unrighteous and sinful. 
God's law is the heir of man's personal and social life. Without God's law, man perishes. Returning to Stevens, he added, Since therefore the character of God is conceived in New Testament teaching as absolute moral perfection, righteousness in men becomes a name for that disposition and method of life which accord with God's holy will. In short, righteousness is godlikeness. Thus righteousness is a quality of God's nature and action, on the one hand, and on the other, the character which God requires of man. The meaning of holiness is separation, cutting off, dedicated to a specific and restricted use, as against profane and open to common use. Although modernist commentators might object, God's holiness thus clearly means his separation from all created being and his transcendence. Man's holiness is thus man's separation to God and his transcendence of the humanistic and social forces and influences in terms of dedication to God and his law word. Whereas the Hebrew word for holiness means a cutting off, a separation, we have in the New Testament not only similar words translated as holiness, but also others which signify vigorous or strong in origin, and still others which mean godly or holy. Pure, purity, is the meaning of still another term. Holiness is separation from sin and consecration to God. According to Stevens, In the absolute sense, God alone is holy, and his holiness is the ground of the requirement of holiness in his creatures. 1 Peter 1.16 Holiness is the attribute of God, according to which he wills and does only that which is morally good. In other words, it is the perfect harmony of his will with his perfect ethical nature. But the divine holiness is not to be thought of as a mere passive, quiescent state. It is an active impulse, a forthgoing energy. In God's holiness, that is, in the expression of his perfect ethical nature, his self-revelation is grounded. Nay, creation itself, as well as redemption, would be inconceivable apart from the divine holiness, the energizing of God's absolute goodwill. Righteousness and holiness are aspects of the image of God and man, but man is fallen, and as a result, sin rather than righteousness and holiness marks his being. In what sense then can we speak of man's nature as sinner having any relationship to these attributes? It must be said that, in fallen man, the urge to righteousness and holiness persists. Man, although in total rebellion against God, is still not his own creator. However much Sartre tries in his philosophy to make man's nature a product of man's own creative act, man remains inescapably a creature of God. Since man cannot remake himself, and since man remains always and in all things God's handiwork, man's actions are at best analogical and imitative. Man the sinner repeats what God ordains, but he attempts to do it on autonomous grounds. It follows, therefore, that fallen man does strive after righteousness, but only on his own terms. As a result, what he perverts the urge to righteousness into is self-righteousness and self-justification. He justifies his ways before God and man and asserts that his sin is virtue. Man's sin thus becomes his assertion of righteousness. The tempter asserted the righteousness of rebellion against God by implying that God's requirements are sin. Genesis 3, 1-5, Matthew 4, 1-11. What he posited in so doing was a neutral realm of good and evil, entirely separate from God, whereby man can judge God. In terms of scripture, however, the good is good for man because it has been set as good for man by God. This is usually expressed by saying that the good is good because God says it is good. As such, it is contrasted with non-Christian thought, which says that the good exists in its own right 
and that God strives for that which is good in itself. We do not artificially separate the will of God from the nature of God. It is the nature as well as the will of God that is ultimately good. Yet since this nature of God is personal, there is no sense in which we can say that the good exists in its own right. The neutral transcendental idea of righteousness, which the fallen man posits, is in reality a projection of his own ideas to a position of judgment over God. Instead of God's revealed law, man projects his concepts of righteousness and justice into the universe and then asserts that his intellectual progeny is self-generated. This projection is an aspect of man's claim of autonomy from God. Van Til has pointed out that, When man fell, it was therefore his attempt to do without God in every respect. Man sought his ideals of truth, goodness, and beauty somewhere beyond God, either directly within himself or in the universe about him. God had interpreted the universe for him, or we may say man had interpreted the universe under the direction of God. But now he sought to interpret the universe without reference to God. We mean, of course, without reference to the kind of God defined above. Adam and Eve did not say, Go to, let us do evil. Instead, they accepted the tempter's assumption that God is unrighteous and thus strives to prevent man from realizing his own deity. Accordingly, they chose the true and higher way to righteousness, a course of autonomous or self-righteousness, Genesis 3, 1-5. Not only is righteousness redefined by the sinner, but holiness also. Holiness becomes separation not to God, but from God. The moral freedom of man requires, it is held, the rejection of God's demand for slavish obedience. Man must be free, and freedom is defined as autonomy from God and a rejection of God's law. Holiness has been an important concept in the beatnik and hippie cultures of the 1960s and early 1970s. Allen Ginsberg, in his poem Howl, first published in 1959, defined the new holiness as anti-God and anti-law. Holiness means separation, in this kind of thinking, from everything godly and biblical. It means a radical approval of an outlaw culture. According to Ginsburg, in the sequel, Footnote to Howell, Everything is holy. Everybody's holy. Everywhere is holy. Every day is an eternity. Every man's an angel. The bum's as holy as the seraphim. The madman is holy as you, my soul, are holy. Because anti-godly holiness means separation from God in terms of man's autonomy, it follows that its righteousness is self-righteousness. Thus, sinful man does not deny the need for righteousness and holiness. Instead, he redefines these concepts in terms of his assertion of autonomy. He then strives to create a personal and social order in terms of this perversion. When the state, school, church, or society abandons its biblical calling, it then seeks to establish an order of righteousness and holiness based on man's autonomy. The modern state is intensely concerned with righteousness and holiness, but in a radically anti-Christian manner. It cannot be neutral. It is inescapably tied to God's order, to righteousness and to holiness, as well as to dominion and knowledge. In its sin, it turns these things into a parody of themselves. It seeks to attain these things in autonomy. Its quest is self-frustrating and its conclusion is always confusion. Genesis 11, 1-9 Righteousness and holiness are basic to the image of God, and therefore to any personal or social renewal and progress. The great fallacy of revivalism has been its attempt to replace the force of law and law-keeping in furthering man's life in Christ with supposedly charismatic experiences. 
During the 1930s, much was said about the return to religion. The World War II years supposedly were bringing men back to the faith. After the war, Billy Graham, Youth for Christ, and other movements were called the forerunners of a great Christian revival, as later were Campus Crusade, Jesus Rock, Jesus Freaks, and other movements. Instead, the United States drifted deeper into humanism and moral decay. None of these movements placed any emphasis on God's law. Most were antinomian, and the result was much emotionalism and less righteousness and holiness.